again. It's, I think, been a while since the last time I was here. Um, and it was uh, kind of a surprise blessing to see you bring new members in. Uh, we pray for you guys weekly. One of the things we pray for is that God would be building his church over here, adding to your number and building up in the faith. So it's a bit of a blessing to walk in and see that prayer being answered as new members are being brought into your fellowship here. This morning we're going to be in Romans chapter 6. As Don mentioned, we're going to be uh, really looking at the subject of the objective basis of our union with Christ as we have it presented to us uh, in this passage here. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 4, uh, but I want to read verses 5.20 through 6.14, and that's that context because in verse 1, chapter 6, Paul's going to ask a question. And that question, based on what he says in verse 20 and 21, immediately proceeding, and then he's going to proceed to answer and explain that question. And we get a general explanation in verses 3 and 4, and a detailed explanation in verses 5 through 14. So by reading this section, we kind of catch the entire context. So if you'd uh, turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 5, verse 20, we're going to read through 14. This is the word of the Lord. And the law came in that the transgression might increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized in Christ Jesus have been baptized in his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism and death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have come united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, believe that we shall also live with him knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's blessing upon the preaching of his word. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we do thank you for these great gospel truths uh, that we are dead to sin and alive to you in Christ Jesus, uh, that we are no longer under the law as a master, we are under grace. Uh, and Father, we thank you for the abundance of that grace you have poured out upon us. 
And Father, we pray that you will bless the reading of the word in the presence of your people. And now, Father, we ask that you'd bless the preaching of the word to your people. Pray that you would give grace to the preacher to speak truth with clarity. Pray that you would give grace to your people to hear it with equal clarity and to receive it in their hearts, Lord. And we pray, Father, that in both the preacher and the people, your spirit be doing his work through this preached word as it's preached. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I'm assuming to most of you, this is a familiar passage. In fact, if you think about your church experience, I wouldn't be surprised uh, if this passage is a passage you heard read at almost every baptism you've been present for. Uh, and although this passage does tell us something about baptism, ultimately this passage is really not about baptism. Think of Ephesians 5. It's similar to Ephesians 5. You might read that passage and go, oh, Ephesians 5, a passage about marriage. And then you read it closely and go, well, no, it's really not about marriage. It's about the relationship between Christ and his church. And marriage is here presented to us as a picture of the, uh, or an illustration of the reality of Christ's relationship to his bride. And so, too, our passage today is not so much about baptism as it is about our union with Christ. And baptism provides a picture of the reality of our union with Christ. In fact, if you were to look at verses 3 and 4 and take out the word baptism and put in the union with Christ, you get what I'm talking about. In verse 3, he says, Or do you not know that all those who have been been baptized into Christ, he could have said, who have been united to Christ, have been united to his death. Therefore, we have been uh, buried with him through baptism into death, or we have been united with him in his death, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. And then there's the implication that if we were united to him in his death, we're united to his resurrection. And in fact, that's what he specifically says in verse 5. Our union with Christ is objectively realized, or it's brought into being by the person and work of Christ that established and inaugurates the new covenant. The grounds for our union with Christ were established by his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And in the flow of the book of Romans, uh, Paul has established in the first three chapters that we are all in bondage to sin. And then in chapters 4 and 5, he establishes that we are justified by faith alone. And now, in chapter 6 through 8, he's turning his attention to that we are now to live to God. So we're in a transition in Paul's uh, life thought from one fruit of justification, peace with God, when we're justified, we're reconciled to God. We're no longer under condemnation. We now stand at peace with God. And he's moving to another fruit of justification, which is our holiness, chapter 6. So this is a transitional verse. So the attention turns away from the believer's legal status, having peace with God, no longer under condemnation, to now his spiritual moral condition. And so Paul's line of thought here centers upon concepts of holiness, living in life, dying to sin, and living to God in light of his conclusion in chapter 5 that where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. 
You see, that statement is a conclusion of what he's been teaching in chapter 5. And that conclusion now is the basis of the exhortations that follow. And so chapter 5 and chapter 6 are related to one another in the same way that justification and sanctification are related. When God declares the sinner just, he pours the sanctifying spirit into his heart, producing holiness. But this raises a question. And Paul asks this question in chapter 6, verse 1. He answers it in verse 2, and he explains in verse 3 and 4. So that's going to be the outline of how we're going to address this. Let's go back and look at the foundation in the question in 520 through 6.1. And the law came in that the transgression might increase. Where sin increased, grace sounded all the more. That as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? So in light of this reality that he's just established that where sin increases, grace abounds all the more, he says, well, what should we say about that then? Because of that, does that mean we should continue in sin that grace might increase? So the question's real straightforward. The question's this. Are we who are justified by faith and forgiven our sins... Another way to say it would be, are we who are cleansed by the blood of the Son of God to continue or persist or abide or live in sin? Those would be all ways to say it. Where he talks about continuing in sin, he's talking about sin being the manner or pattern of our life. Now let's be clear on what the question is not. The question here is not... The Christian still sin. Do you see the difference between those two? Because Paul goes on in chapter 7 to clearly affirm, yes, we still sin. The Christian still has sin in his life. There's a remnant of sin that, uh, that remains. And in chapter 7, uh, he deals with that. He talks about how the very thing I, I don't want to do, I do. And the very thing I do want to do, I don't do. And he, he uh, characterizes it as a spiritual warfare. Okay, that's not the question. The question is, should the Christian persist in habits of sin as their way of life so that they may receive more God's free grace? That's the full question here. If you think about what he said about where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, this is a legitimate question. If where there's more sin, there's more grace, and more grace is a good thing, then the conclusion would be, shouldn't I sin more? Will that not magnify God's grace more? In fact, can I even make an argument that it would be the morally responsible thing to do to sin so God would pour out more grace, God would get more glory? You know, isn't this a fair and logical conclusion to the doctrines of grace? I mean, salvation's all grace. God gets glorified in it. Well, we'll get to the answer in question two, but I'll give you a preview. No, that's to presume upon God. And that's to presume upon His grace. We'll get that in a minute. 
But we have to ask, why is Paul asking this question? Well, he front loads the objection, not because he has concerns his hearers reject the doctrines of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. In fact, there's internal evidence in the book of Romans that that wasn't his concern. He was concerned that they understood the relationship between law and grace now that they are saved. He was concerned that once they realize that salvation comes by faith alone and keeping the law in no way contributes to that salvation, that they would completely reject the law as having any place in their life and might draw the wrong conclusion about how they were now to live. He was concerned that conclusion would be if where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, and having more grace, definitely a good thing, then we should live in sin so we get more grace. And we understand that that is an appealing thought. It appeals right to the remaining sin in our members. Because we've all had this happen when dealing with that besetting sin or that strong temptation that the enemy comes whispering in our ears, hey, you're forgiven by God's grace. It doesn't matter if you indulge in this sin. Go ahead, you're forgiven. Right? Isn't that the gospel you believe? You're forgiven. And that's how that temptation comes to us. You know, it brings that thought that maybe I can be forgiven the judgment that's to my sin and at the same time indulge in the perceived pleasures of my sin. And that's the temptation the enemy's constantly laying for us. Now, as I said, there's internal evidence right here in the book of Romans that this had already, this accusation had already been leveled against Paul's ministry. So he's aware of this. He's aware of the being out there. He's already been accused of preaching this very thing. Because in Romans 3.8, he says, And why not say, as we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come. You see the accusation? Let us do evil that good may come. Let us more so we may get more good grace. He's already been accused of it, and he knows that's the slanderous thing that's being said about his gospel. His response to that in Romans 3.8 was simply this, their condemnation is just. He condemns that. Paul was already aware that people were saying this about his gospel, and he is putting it on the table so that he can deal with it. And what we have to understand, this type of logic is present with us today. It's present with us in the church. How many times have you not heard it when you'd mentioned something about the law of God and the need to walk according to God's word? Oh, I'm not under law, I'm under grace. That this text is wrenched out of its context and used to mean the exact opposite of what Paul says. So this is very alive today. This idea that I'm not under law, I'm under grace, and therefore the law of God has no abiding authority in my life. 
And this way of thinking has serious consequences. Over in the book of Jude, uh, when he's writing to them about his reason for writing, it was because there were ungodly persons who had snuck into the church and were turning the grace of God into licentiousness. He basically says there that to profess Christ and live a licentious life, to profess Christ and persist in sin as our way of life is to deny Christ. See, that's the consequences of this kind of thinking. To persist in sin while professing to be a Christian is really to deny Christ. We deny that profession by our very manner of life. It is a practical denial of Christ to claim his name, but live in opposition to his commandments. And such a one really is a false professor who has no stake in Christ at all. Paul gives the answer to his question, verse 2, where he says, May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Now, this initial response, may it never be. Some translations might say, God forbid. Uh, what it, it is the strongest possible negative statement in the original language. He, he couldn't give any more of a strong negative rebuttal to this. And then he follows it up. What's really a rhetorical question? How shall we who died to sin still live it? Well, the obvious answer is we can't. Okay, now again, Paul is aware that believers still sin until Christ returns in glory and consummates the perfection of our salvation. He's fully aware of that. Okay, the presence of remaining sin, however, does not justify taking the easy route in this life and living in sin and silencing our consciences by saying, oh, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Oh, I'm not under law, I'm under grace. No, Paul goes on in Romans 7 to describe our life walk as a spiritual warfare. And the fact that we are dead to sin, when he tells us that here, is our sure hope of victory in this lifelong war with sin. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, isn't meant to excuse our sin, but to give us hope that Christ has won a sure victory over sin so that we continue to persevere in our struggle with sin. See, what we have to realize is this, a decisive change has been made in us. When we are united to Christ, we die to sin. He's taking that plane here. We are dead to sin. We are separated from its power. We have renounced any allegiance to sin. And by the waters of baptism, we have professed our allegiance to God in Christ Jesus by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. This justification by faith alone, through the free grace of God alone, and imputed righteousness of Christ alone, results in a changed condition. We are now dead to sin. And just as death severs our connection with this world and all that remains in it, so too are we severed from sin and that life of sin. 
We are freed from a connection to sin. We are now alienated from sin. We are free from the dominion of sin and it no longer has power or rule in our life like it once did. And just as a dead man cannot live in this world. Yes, see, the scripture says there's no such thing as a zombie, right? Dead people do not live in this world. Neither can the Christian live in sin as their manner of life. So what we'll see is, this is a preposterous question. It's absolutely ridiculous. It's just a totally ridiculous idea to entertain. Because to continue in sin is a contradiction of our new identity in Christ, defined by our union with Him in His death and resurrection. We are now dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. We can't continue in sin. To continue sinning as before, succumbing with a resistance to sin's dominion, is not only inappropriate, it's actually impossible. Okay, again, we're not talking about our struggles with sin. We're not talking about our continued uh, uh, occasional fall into sin. We are talking about without resistance, just walking in sin as a way of life. It's an impossibility for the believer. You see, justification changes moral nature. To continue in sin, that's the desire of the unregenerate. What's the desire of the heart of a regenerate person? What's the heart of the person who's united to Christ? Is please their Lord and Master and walk after Him following His commands. Do we do that perfectly? Absolutely not. But will that someday be perfect us in His glory? Absolutely. In the meantime, we're in the middle of a fight. So if we continue in sin as a habit of life, what it reveals is we are still dead in our sin. And in fact, have not yet been regenerated and made alive in Christ. John Gill has a great quote here. He says, The thing is impracticable for for gracious soul to live sin would be to die again, become dead in sin, which cannot be. Do you see the wonder of his argument there? To go back to living in sin as a way of life, you would have to go from being alive in Christ, you'd have to go back to being dead in sin. And the scripture tells us that's impossible. We would have to die again, become dead in sin, which cannot be. He that lives and believes in Christ shall never die, spiritually or eternally. Fall into sin they may, but live and lie in it they cannot. It is not falling in the water that drowns man, but it is his lying in it. So it is not falling into sin that damns a man, but it is his living in it. There's even words of encouragement here in that struggle sin. That yes, time to time we lose that battle. We fall in sin. But our sure hope is that Christ has won the victory. The sure hope is we have forgiveness in Christ. He calls us to confess those sins and repent of those sins. And he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. Uh, and, uh, and so there's hope here in dealing with remaining sin. Sin. 
Now we come to the answer, or I should say his explanation of his answer in verses 3 and 4. And up this point, you might be asking, well, what does baptism have to do with all this? Because we haven't really talked about it. Well, we get to the connection to baptism and Paul's explanation of his answer, that those who have died to sin can't continue to live in it. So he makes that assertion as part of his answer to a rhetorical question, that those who have died to sin can't continue to live in it, and that implies the question, why can't those who have died to sin continue to live in it? And the answer is, because they are united to Christ. They have been baptized in Christ, verses 3 and 4. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized in Christ Jesus have been baptized in his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism in death, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Now, for the sake of clarity, I prefer the translation baptized in Christ, not into. I read it as in, but the translation I'm reading out of actually has into. Some translations have it as in. Both are grammatically correct. However, to say we baptized into Christ could carry the connotation that it is the act of baptism that unites us to Christ. And that's the false teaching of sacramentalism, that it is the actual physical act of baptism that saves us and unites us to Christ regardless of any faith in the person who's being baptized. What our confession of faith says is that baptism is a sign to the person baptized. Okay, so baptism is a sign, and it's a sign to the individual that's being baptized. Well, what's it a sign of? It's a sign of his fellowship with Christ in his death and resurrection, or our union with Christ in his death and resurrection, of being engrafted into him, or united to him would be the word we would use, of remission of sins, and of submitting themselves to God through Jesus Christ to live newness of life. So what Paul is doing here, he's using the sign to stand for the thing signified, or he's using sign, baptism, to stand for the reality, union with Christ. We are now in eternal union with Christ. We are united to him in his death, and by this union with him in his death, we have died to sin. And since he was made sin and a curse for us, bearing our sins in his own body on the tree and rising again for our justification, our whole sinful condition has been imputed to his person, punished upon the cross, and has been brought to an end in his death. The person you were before your conversion no longer exists. That person is still in the grave. We have to remember that whenever we speak Christ's death, we speak of Christ as our sin bearer. Him who knew no sin, but became sin for us, that he might die to sin. And in his death to sin, 
put sin to death. And when he put sin to death, he put sin to death for us because we couldn't do it ourselves. But equally important, he put sin to death in us so that it no longer reigns. That we would die to sin and be freed from its bondage. Whoever then has been baptized in Christ's death, or another way to say this, whoever has been regenerated has been separated from the state of sin and given up the life of sin. Just as being baptized in his death means that we have died to sin in the same way that Christ has since we are united to him. in that death, that same principle applies to the resurrection that we are united with him in his resurrection and thus we have been raised to a new eternal life in the same way that he has been raised it's the same principle it is through the efficacy of christ's death alone the death the sin of people takes place and is applied to his people through the work of holy spirit so a change takes place in every true christian and that change is symbolized by baptism. And this change bears a likeness to death and resurrection of the Savior. You see, this picture in baptism points two ways. It points backwards to Christ's death and burial and to our death sin as we are immersed beneath the water. And it points forward to Christ's resurrection from dead and to our life being represented by being raised up from what one commentator called our watery grave. Now, I want you to take note of something very specific in this text. When we have a tendency to think about the, the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, we use those terms to, to describe this whole complex of what he accomplished in uh, accomplishing our redemption, right? We talk about the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we do that, we understand we're talking about everything that was included in that. And our text points out something very specific included in that that we don't see in other places. And if you look at the text in verse... Um, four... He says, therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. So what this text is saying is, we've died with him, we've been buried with him, we've raised with him. You go, okay, what's the big deal here? Well, being buried with him represents our constant abiding in death to sin. See, the life of Christ in us through our union with him is only made manifest in this life if we are constantly being delivered over to death. In other words, if we are constantly, daily, dying to sin, elsewhere the scripture describes this as putting off the old man. Baptism not only represents our death to sin, but it also represents a continuing in that state of death to sin by mortifying sin in our flesh. Being buried in the waters of baptism signifies not only our being dead with Christ and our communion within his death and dead to the laws of covenant of works, but also our dead to sin 
by the grace of Christ, and therefore the conclusion of being dead to sin, we ought not to live in it anymore. You see, this is again that spiritual warfare of the Christian life. Constantly putting off old habits of sin, putting off the old man, striving to put on new habits of righteousness by walking according to the law of God as our rule of life, putting on the new man. And so doing, we, in being buried with him by our baptism into his death, have by this public act severed our last link of connection with that whole sinful condition in life which Christ brought to an end in his death. And you might say, okay, I get it, sounds good, what's the big deal? Well, this is important when it comes to resisting temptation. This is important when it comes to fighting the spiritual battle in this life, and turning away from sin. Remember, why did Paul make that statement about where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more? It was to give us hope in this battle. Uh, hope that that uh, uh, Christ has won this sure victory over sin so that we would continue to fight against it. So that when the temptation came, succumb to it, we would say, no, I'm dead to sin. I can't do that. The victory's been won. And when we look at verse 11 here, uh, in, further on in this section, he tells them, even so, consider yourselves be dead to sin, but alive God in Christ Jesus. That word consider means to be immersed in this. Immerse yourself in this truth. You are dead to sin and alive to Christ. When temptations come, immerse yourself in this truth. You are dead to sin and alive to Christ. And what's his conclusion of that in verse 12? Before. Because of this, don't let sin reign more in your mortal body. Don't let your body be an instrument of unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as an instrument of righteousness. You see, this is critical to resisting temptation. This is critical to our turning away from sin. When these temptations come, we can say, we can look that temptation to sin in our enemy, the world, the flesh, and the devil, right in the eye and say, I am not that person anymore. I have died to that sin. I, I no longer have to walk in that sin. I've been free from the bondage of that sin. Now granted, that doesn't happen by our own self-will. Just think of, of one of the petitions of how we are to pray. Lead me not in temptation, but deliver me from evil. It requires grace, brothers, sisters. Okay? But let's look at what Paul's telling us here we have. Okay, we've been freed from the power and the bondage of sin. No longer has no dominion over us. We're now new creation and dwelt by the Holy Spirit. And we have the Word of God as a rule of life that shows us the path ahead. We have everything we need. We have the grace of Christ. We have his word that shows us the way. So when these temptations come, we need to turn and we need to seek that grace that will empower us to say no to sin, to turn away from that sin. Okay? And it is an encouragement to us when those times come, especially when this is the 10th time I've had to say no to that temptation in the last 10 minutes. Okay, This is not who I am. 
Christ has won the sure victory. His grace is mine. I need to walk in it. And that's because the purpose of our union with Christ is that in our death to sin and resurrection by the same power of God that gloriously raised Christ from the dead, we are now to walk in newness of life. That's how he ends verse 4. So, a purpose statement. So, we too might walk in newness of life. Why have we been made dead to sin and alive to God in Christ? For the purpose that we walk in this new life. We are united to Christ in our new resurrected life as believers, and we are to be conformed to Christ in his resurrection as well as in his death. We have been raised by the majestic power of God in union with Christ, and our life now has the same purpose as Christ's life. Do we understand that? Our life now has the same purpose as Christ's life. What did Christ continually say about his ministry on earth? I've come to do the Father's will. I'm here to glorify the Father. Everything he did was aimed at obeying and glorifying his Father. And we are now to live a life in conformity to his life with the exact same purpose. Because union with Christ carries the idea of conformity to him. If united to him, we've been made like him. The implication is we are to live like him. If we are united to him in his death and resurrection, it means we are like him, we are to be like him. And the act of baptism also denotes dedication to the service of him in whose name we are baptized. Okay. One of its designs is to dedicate, consecrate, or set ourselves apart to the service of Christ. So we have been solemnly consecrated by baptism to the service of Christ. So to continue to live in sin is a violation of the very nature of our Christian profession. And the only thing that validates the truthfulness of our profession of faith in our baptism is walking in a new way of life according to the moral law of God as our rule of life. This is what it means to be conformed to Christ, to be pressed into his image as the one who does the Father's will, or as our text says, to walk in newness of life. Brothers and sisters, if we are in personal union with Christ, then we are likewise in personal union with him in his death and resurrection, so that his death and resurrection become meaningful to us. You know, sometimes we can have a, a tendency to think theological abstracts just that, abstract, but they don't have any real practical meaning. Okay, this has practical meaning. What's the practical meaning that united to Christ in his, death, in his death and resurrection? Well, one is the guilt and shame of my sin has been removed. I no longer live with guilt. I no longer carry around any shame. Christ bore that for me. He took it to the grave with him. It has been removed. My relationship to the law has changed. I no longer live under the condemnation of the law. 
Okay. My relationship to sin has changed. I am now dead to sin. It no longer has dominion over me. We have been united to Christ's faith and now share in his relationship sin and his relation to the law that has been imputed to us by grace. And union with Christ is the ground of our justification and now our sanctification. It's in union with Christ that we have died to sin and are separated from its reign in our life. We have been buried in union with Christ and abide in death to sin continually, putting to death the deeds of the flesh in our mortal bodies. And it is in union with Christ that we have been raised in newness of life. Again, union with Christ has affected a radical change in us. We are new creations. We have a new relationship to sin, and we have a new relationship to the law of God. 1 Corinthians 15, 56 says, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. By being united to Christ in his death as our sin bearer, the full judgment of the law of God for our sin was poured out upon Christ and the demands of divine justice were satisfied. What did Paul say in chapter 8, verse 1 of this very book? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is a complete and emphatic truth. The power of sin is the law. The demand of the law were satisfied in Christ's perfect life and atoning death. And because of that, sin no longer has power over those united to Christ. We are now new creations in union with Christ, called to a new life in Christ that will be marked out by an ever-growing conformity to Christ, to the glory of the Father. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, Lord, these are glorious truths. And our prayer is, by the work of your Spirit, the ministry of your Word to us, that you would make them daily realities. And Lord, we think of this particularly in the ongoing struggle with sin, the ongoing spiritual warfare we find ourselves in, Father, that we would look to Christ, we would, uh, that we would look to our baptism and what it stands for, that we have died to sin, we remain dead to sin, and we are now alive to you as new creations, and our purpose here is to glorify you our life. Father, as these temptations come, give us the grace to turn away from them. Give us the grace to shun them and say no to them, and give us grace to cling to Christ by faith. Father, we ask this in his name. Amen.